want to welcome you to Holy Week here at Central where we seek transformation through the renewing work of the Lord Jesus Christ. As Eric mentioned a few moments ago, the rest of Holy Week, we're going to walk through the story of the last week of, of Jesus's life. And some of these services may feel like they're unfinished because the story's unfinished. It's this whole week ties together to lead us to the empty tomb where the Lord Jesus was raised victorious. I want to invite you to come back to these services on Thursday night and Friday night and invite friends and neighbors. You may have seen on the way in, there are these little postcards at the welcome tables on both ends of the sanctuary. Pick one of these up and give it to a friend, give it to a neighbor. It has our service times and how they can find out more information about Central. We'd love to have your friends and neighbors here with us. Well, this week, we start with the beginning of the Easter story. We begin with the triumphal entry with Palm Sunday as Jesus enters Jerusalem for the last week of his earthly life. Maybe you wonder, why did he go? He knew that there were religious leaders who were opposing him, who wanted to kill him. And as he entered Jerusalem on that Sunday, it highlights not exactly why he went to Jerusalem, but also why he took on flesh to enter this world. Why is Jesus here? Let's pray together as we turn to God's word. Oh, Holy Spirit, open our hearts, open our eyes that we might behold Jesus, that we might know him and follow after him as your dearly loved children. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. John 12, beginning in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God will stand forever. Have you ever received a promise that in the keeping of it looked very different than what you expected it to be? Any ever participate or in a promise or receive a promise like that? Some people say that marriage is like that. This lasting promise that husbands and wives make on their wedding day and, and the way they experience that promise in their early newlywed years looks very differently in the twists and turns and sacrifices that are necessary for a lasting lifelong promise in marriage. It doesn't look like we expect at the beginning. Some people think that the promise of family is very different from what we expect. The the bright days of, of little ones that turn to concerns and cares of parents and teenagers, and you never stop being a parent, I suppose. Always concerned about your children, but the twists and turns in one another's lives sometimes look different than what you expect, especially in these past couple of years. Years that have been 
painful for so many of us. There's polarization in our culture about politics and vaccines and masks and pandemic and all the rest. It's not only in our culture, but there's polarization within families too. It's hard for children and parents sometimes to talk about some of these things and what you expected your relationship with your children to be like might look a little differently than you thought it was when they were in their younger years. We find Jesus entering Jerusalem on this Palm Sunday. The Sunday before Passover is he came into the city as a manifestation of a lasting promise. And yet the keeping of that promise was more beautiful and yet at the same time more painful than the people of Israel expected. In Jesus' day, people came to Jerusalem on pilgrimage three times a year every year. They came for Passover, for Pentecost, and for the Feast of Tabernacles. And here in verse 12 of verse 12, we see people coming into Jerusalem on this Palm Sunday for the service of and the ceremony of Passover. Now, maybe you remember what Passover is. It was a celebration of God freeing his people from slavery in Egypt. You remember he told his people to put the the blood of the lamb over their doorposts, and the angel of death passed over these families who believed, and they were delivered. They've been celebrating that promise of deliverance year after year after year, and here they came to Jerusalem one more time to remember the deliverer who would come. The Bible was full of promises that this deliverer, this king unlike any other king God's people have ever had, he, one day he's going to come, and he's going to enable us to love and serve God in freedom one more time. And so that's what all the crowds were doing as they were coming into Jerusalem that day as verse 12 uh, tells us. They're traveling in mass, hundreds of thousands of people together with hundreds of thousands of lambs all pouring into the city of Jerusalem. Many of them, John tells us in verse 16, had come from the next village over. They had seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. They had seen him do it, and now they followed Jesus on that just a couple of mile walk from Bethany into Jerusalem, not knowing what to expect. I mean, what would you be expecting if that were you? You'd never seen anything like this before. You saw a man that you knew, Lazarus, who had been laid in the tomb, and four days later, he walked out. You'd never experienced anything like that before in your life. What would you be expecting now that the man who did it is leading a procession of people into Jerusalem, into the capital city, into into the temple toward, toward Mount Zion. My guess is that our expectations would be running wild. What's gonna happen when he gets there? It's a question for you and for me too. What do you expect out of Jesus when he moves into your life, when he draws into your place and gets close to you? What do you expect out of Jesus? What we're going to do this morning is try to get inside this story and experience it this morning. I want you to imagine yourself that you were a person in that crowd. You were a person walking on this dusty road together with all these maybe seven or 800,000 people coming into Jerusalem and a quarter million lambs all on this road, walking into this city of Jerusalem with Jesus in your midst. What what you think is going to happen that day. Well, what people expected to happen as Jesus came that morning first is they expected to find a conqueror. They'd been waiting on a conqueror for years, a a, a victor, someone to triumph over the enemies of God's people and bring deliverance. One would restore Israel to its glory. 
someone who would return the land to God's people. And yet they knew that the Romans stood in the way. They knew that the Romans were in the way and they needed a conqueror, a deliverer who could right all the wrongs in this broken down world. And they had waited and waited and waited for hundreds of years for God to bring that conqueror about. As you walked along that crowd in that road with Jesus, everyone was thinking, maybe he's the one. Maybe this is the deliverer. Maybe this is the real one who's, who's come to bring this blessing to all of us and to God's people. So as they marched into Jerusalem that day, expectations were, were everywhere. Finally, the conquering king is here. And so they began to wave palm branches, verse 13 tells us. Now, John's the only gospel writer who, who, wrote, who tells us about the palm branches. And you might wonder, why do we do that? <laughs> Why were they uh, waving palm branches and why were these people waving palm branches? Well, 200 years before, there was another man named Simon Maccabeus and he had driven enemies out of Jerusalem. He drove the Syrians out of Jerusalem and restored the temple so the people could worship once more and the people began to wave palm branches at that victory that they experienced that the temple had been restored. God's people had their land restored to them. So they waved palm branches as a sign of victory, a sign of triumph, and they had been doing it ever since. As a matter of fact, they had stamped on their coins a palm as a sign of triumph of the God of Israel over all of his enemies. It would be a little bit like waving a flag on Independence Day. Remember all these incredible victories. Remember the great things that have been done for us. And yet when they waved those palms that day with the king on the road, they were waving them in independence of Rome. The day is here. So get that picture. Palm branches and a sign of the conqueror being waved. And they sang, verse 13, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a quote from Psalm 118. It means, save us now, God. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then they added a bit that isn't in Psalm 118. They added even the king of Israel, because this is he. We're on the road and the king of Israel is right here. Now that was a mouthful because that's a cry of insurrection. That was a rebellious cry because Israel had a king and Jesus was not he. This was a cry of protesting the presence of Rome and, 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 and protesting Herod, the puppet king that Rome had established. They waved and they sang, finally the real king, the good king is here. And he's going to reverse all of our fortunes. He's going to deliver us from evil. And so they waved the palm branches and sang, the king is here. Now on the one hand, those are good and proper and godly desires. It is right for God's people to long for and work for the conquering of evil, for the removal of injustice, for the restoration of peace, for God's people to be set free from persecution. We all should long for those things. We all should want those things and work for those things because that's what Jesus says his kingdom is about. In his very first sermon in Luke chapter 4, preaching from Isaiah 61, he says his kingdom is about proclaiming good news to the poor. Proclaiming liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's what Jesus said his kingdom is about. And if our, in our hearts, evil is not so bad that we don't care much about it. If evil is just something that's just a fleeting thought and it's not so awful that we are moved in God's name to oppose it, 
If we're not doing that, then we aren't paying attention. We aren't paying attention to how awful evil and sin is in this world, and neither are we paying attention to what God says about his own kingdom. The impulse and the expectation of desiring a conquering king is a good one, but the the problem was with the how. The way that our conquering king of God's lasting promise would establish his work isn't by getting rid of all the bad people because there would be no one left. If he entered into Jerusalem to get rid of all the bad people, all the Romans would be gone, all the Jews would be gone. In our sanctuary, there wouldn't be any Americans or Kenyans or Ukrainians or wherever you're from because the problem of evil is not just out there with those people. The problem of evil is in our hearts too. And the conquering king has to conquer me. He has to conquer you in his grace. And he does it not by forcing all the bad people out, but rather our king wears a crown of thorns. Our king climbs his throne, which is a cross. And he conquers through sacrifice. He conquers through giving his life in exchange for yours and mine. He claims victory over evil and sin and injustice by being our redeemer. The Christ who's come to pay for all of our sin. The king's cross where my evil and yours and the power of evil has been upended. That king comes into Jerusalem with people waving palm branches of victory in order to have victory through his death. That's not what they were looking for. That's not what they expected or it's not even what they wanted. Sometimes it's true of you and me too. Sometimes God's work doesn't meet our expectations. And we demand that he does his work in our way rather than his. And sometimes we begin to attach our emotions to those expectations that we have of God. And we begin to think, God, if you're not doing this thing that I think you should, then I feel abandoned by you. God, if you haven't done this thing that I think you should in the way that I think you should, maybe you don't even care about me anymore. We might even at times oppose God and think you're, you're not getting the work done. You're not doing it right. I'm going to take matters into my own hands to take care of myself. Sometimes we live with false expectations of God. Sometimes we say, Lord, this is what I want and this is what I want to do. Now your job is to go make it happen. Here's my plan for my comfort, my success, my, my prosperity, my triumph. So Jesus, your job is to pull it all off. But sometimes his plan is for something completely different. Sometimes his plan for our good even involves our suffering. Sometimes his plan for our good and for our triumph looks a whole lot like defeat. He calls us to his purposes in his way and he calls us to inhabit that same space in the way that we relate to others too. There are ways that we can so identify our desires and our plans with God's that we begin to use strong-arm tactics to pull our agenda off and we baptize it and call it God's. But it's really not. Sometimes when we want our way, we try to intimidate and get really loud. I'm going to demand my way. Sometimes when I want my agenda to win, I'm willing to shame other people. Shame you for not seeing an issue the way I see this issue, all the while thinking that we're doing God's work. 
but what if God's calling us away from that? What if he calls us to throw down the victory palm branches? What if he calls us to lay down the banners in order to serve and to sacrifice for his kingdom's sake? I think we honestly understand that the cross of Jesus is the fountainhead of our salvation, but sometimes we forget that that's supposed to be the shape of our lives too. He calls us to pick up our cross, take it up daily, and follow him. Following Jesus as a disciple means dying to self. It means dying to my agenda and instead risking it all to follow him and serve him. The cross is the model for how disciples are supposed to live. When we talk about needing, wanting a life that's transformed to be more like Christ's, we're talking about this. A life of sacrifice, a life of, of love to pursue his kingdom rather than mine. Our king conquers, but he conquers through the cross. He conquers through the resurrection, and our life is to be fueled by that cross and that resurrection that we live for him and his power rather than living for myself all the time. That expectation of a conqueror looked very different from what the people expected, but also they had expectations of peace, and that was different from what the crowds expected to. Let's go back into the story for a minute. In the ancient world, especially in the Roman world, there was a phenomenon called the triumphal entry. And whenever a king or a general would, would conquer or vanquish a city or a place, he would ride into that town on the top of a giant war horse. And most often he would have all of his prisoners in tow behind him, tied together. It's so called the triumphal entry. And it's an image to incite fear and reverence on the hearts of the conquered people. But Jesus, our conqueror, didn't enter Jerusalem on top of a war horse. It seems that John wants us to understand that most of that journey from Bethany to Jerusalem, where the Bethany where he'd raised Lazarus from the dead, walking to Jerusalem, he had been on his feet most of that time. He had been just another guy shuffling down the path from, from Bethany to Jerusalem in the middle of all those crowds, thousands of people cramming in, hundreds of thousands of lambs all on this pathway. And it wasn't until Jesus got really close to Jerusalem, verse 14, that he picked up a donkey, a borrowed donkey. What does that mean? Well, put yourself back in the, in the scene. Throngs praising your name. King, the rebellion has come. Finally, the one who's going to kick out the Romans, the one who's going to do what needs to be done around here. This guy is the king. But instead of getting on top of a war horse and going into his new kingdom, he comes in on a donkey. What's he saying? Well, donkeys were beasts of service. Donkeys were beasts of burden. And when kings rode them, it was a sign of peace. I mean, think about it. Would, could you ever imagine... Uh, a warrior king, a great powerful warrior king and, and all, of his, all of his war uh, equipment, his sword, raining down fierce blows from the top of a donkey. No, that's a silly image, especially as Zechariah says here, a baby donkey, a coal, a foal of a donkey. That's a silly image and that's exactly the point. Jesus came into Jerusalem on a beast of service and peace. 
How dissonant that was from what the people expected him to do. And it was lost on them. Verse 16 says, they had no idea what was happening, didn't understand it. But later, after Jesus was raised from the dead and glorified, they remembered and they turned to Zechariah 9. And remember what had been prophesied. It's quoted in in verse 15. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's a baby donkey. Here's an important Bible study technique. Whenever you see an Old Testament verse quoted in the Gospels, most often the writer is wanting you to understand the context. Remember what's happening right around the the verse that's quoted, the part of the verse that's quoted. Remember the context to capture the meaning. The same thing's happening here. John quoted verse 9 of Zechariah 9. This is what verses 10 and 11 say. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. That's, that's the grave. What he's saying is this conquering king is a king of peace, and he's come to bring an end to war. He's come to bring peace for all the nations. He breaks the bow. But that's not what the crowds thought. And he doesn't do it by kicking out all those people who don't think like them or act like them, which is what they expected. They wanted the king to come in and and kick out the Romans, and then they'll have peace. When we're free of them, then we have peace. But the real Jesus comes into Jerusalem not identifying the problem of the Romans because they aren't the real problem. He came to protect his people from the most potent enemy that we have. His peace is coming in what Passover is all about. That blood of the sacrifice that he says in verse 11. It's what the Passover lamb was sacrificed to to proclaim to the people. Your king comes to bring deliverance and peace to you. And all those Passover lambs all pointed to Jesus. The Lamb of God who's come into the world, our conquering king, slain for the sins of his people on a cross to defeat evil and sin and injustice and even death itself. For people all over the world, Zechariah says, this work of the cross of Jesus to pay for our guilt and our sin, to vanquish sin and evil and death itself, that's where true peace comes from. True peace comes when the power of God is seen to raise the dead as he would be nailed to the cross and be raised from the dead. That's where peace with God comes from. All of our sin is put away. Do you feel hostility between yourself and God? Do you feel like there's sin that stands between you and a holy and perfect God? Do you have a sense that there's something wrong with your life? Turn to the king of peace. The one who went to a cross and shed his blood to offer that peace to you. The one who was raised from the dead to seal that victory that you have peace with God forever. But not only does that king bring peace with God, but he brings peace with one another. It's a great irony that the gentle king came to conquer and triumph through sacrifice and protect his people through giving his life for ours. He calls on us to have a same kind of life. 
But you know, it's easy for us to get on our war horse, isn't it? It's easy for us to climb up onto our war horse and oppose our neighbors. It's easy for us to inhabit that posture of hostility, that posture of conflict, that that posture of anything but what Jesus has come to do. It's easy for us to get on our war horse and try to conquer our neighbors. And yet, the Lord Jesus calls us to a humble posture. The Lord Jesus calls us as followers of a king who said he was a friend of sinners. A posture of one who is a servant, who wants to give his life away without the limelight. A a one who is lowly and gentle with the broken in this world. He calls us to climb down off of your war horse and inhabit a space of service and sacrifice. That's the kind of life that Jesus wants you and me to have. A life of a servant that brings peace through sacrificial love. Through loving one another, through loving sinners into seeing the life and the love of Christ who gave himself for sinners. That's what he wants for you. Are you willing to walk the road with him? What did the people expect on Palm Sunday? They expected a king to establish peace, but not how he came to do it. But what he did was so much more beautiful and yet more painful than they could have ever imagined. And yet eternal life is revealed to us on that Palm Sunday, pictured in the Passover. Let me close with this. Josephus was a first century Jewish historian, and he wrote about the road to Jerusalem during the Passover, and he suggested that there were as many as 250,000 lambs being brought into the city for Passover. Can you imagine what that was like? 250,000 lambs and seven or 800,000 people being herded into these old city gates. It would take days and days for this mass of bleeding sheep and all these hungry people to shuffle their way to the Passover. Imagine being on that road with them. I think that's the metaphor, that's the lasting picture that needs to remain with us as we enter into this holy week. On that road with all those lambs headed to the slaughter of sacrifice, all those people going to Passover and yet together with them, amidst them, in, in their company, was the promised Lamb of God. The one who would come and be the one that all these thousands of lambs, all these, over these hundreds of years, they've all pointed to him. And here he was that day in the midst of a heaving mass of humanity coming into Jerusalem to give his life for sinners like us. That's the image that we go into Holy Week with. The Lamb of God has come to take the sin of the world away, conquering our sin and our death and bringing peace with God and peace with one another. That's the picture I want to leave with you as Jesus, the Lamb of God, enters your life today. Are you ready for him? Are you ready to receive him? Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that you see us as we are. We don't have to clean ourselves up for you, but you see us as we are, and you are the conquering king who's conquered our sin. You wore a crown of thorns. You were nailed to the throne of the cross. 
And now you've been raised from the dead, ascended to glory, and you reign over everything. The conquering king who's made peace. Lord, we need your peace here this morning. There are many people here who are experiencing difficulty in trial. People who are experiencing the pain, experiencing the condemnation of our sin. And we need your peace. So would you remind us of the cross? Enter into our hearts and our our imagination and help us to see you, the risen conquering king who brings us peace. And Lord, set us at peace with one another because you have conquered. Lord, make us your people, a people of service, a people of sacrifice as your disciples, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.